0: You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org.
1: Good morning or afternoon, as the case may be. I wanted to – thank you. I wanted to – that's much better – just briefly give an overview of sort of the framework for spectrum management and where unlicensed use fits within the framework, because I think when you talk about the benefits of something – Uh, to the extent they're relevant, it's nice to have a little background. So I'm gonna try and do this quickly. Uh, Easiest analogy I've ever been able to come up with for spectrum management is it's similar to zoning of real property. So uh, why is there zoning? You know, there are a lot of old legal cases where somebody would try to put a meat processing plant immediately adjacent to a residential neighborhood and uh, that made people in the residential neighborhood uncomfortable. Um, Zoning uh, developed to try to provide some framework around when a landowner might be able to put in an industrial use or not, or what type of residential use, and hopefully you're all familiar with zoning, otherwise the analogy doesn't work. Um, So uh, with Spectrum, there are some similar concerns. Um, You know, some types of systems, broadcast systems, operate at a very high level of power and think of power as somewhat analogous to distance here and therefore it will affect a lot of things uh, and uh, affect a lot of things that are lower power. So in general uh, in Spectrum you try to keep high power uses away from low power uses in the same way with land you might want to keep uh, building a industrial factory type facility or a power plant away from a residential laborer. All right, So in The spectrum world, that's called allocation. so they allocate, I think of it as zoning. You can use the spectrum for broadcasting and that tells the world, hey, there's probably gonna be a high power use there. My low power use that I'm thinking about may not work uh, next to it. Um, Then the second thing is, is just like you get a zoning permit, here's part two of the analogy. You can get a permit to build a particular type of plant right so you've got you've got industrial property it doesn't necessarily mean every possible type of industrial use is available oftentimes you have to get a use permit that's what a spectrum license is analogous to so something's allocated for broadcasting but hey I, I want to do a particular kind well you get a license and that usually gives that person exclusive right to use that spectrum so why do I go through all this well it, sort of three approaches that have developed uh, around that basic framework when it comes to spectrum one of them I'm going to call inflexibly licensed spectrum uses also sometimes called command and control but I think uh, inflexible is more uh, readily understandable second one I'd call flexibly licensed uses and then the third one is unlicensed and I, I usually talk about them uh, in terms of a triangle which I Hopefully you can see I tried to do a visual representation. Because, why a triangle? Because the boundaries between them are not in their entirety completely clear. So, uh, first two, inflexibly licensed and flexibly licensed, you have to have an allocation to get a license. So they, they rely on this allocation process, which there's actually a table of allocations. Think of it as the zoning book at the local county land use you know, committee coordinator official. Uh, the third one, unlicensed, the biggest distinction is there is no allocation for unlicensed use. By definition, I mean, the way I describe it in my Spectrum textbook in class is it, it falls sort of outside the, I guess, ordinary or standard or Maybe just it's been around the longest framework of of allocation and and licensing or also known as assignment. Okay, so next. And if I were to characterize the boundaries between them or the differences at a very high level, inflexibly licensed spectrum use, typically uh, the FCC or another government body would... uh, Required that you use a particular technology standard. And comply with what I'm calling power limits, but think of them as technical parameters. Of classic use is broadcasting. AM broadcasting and FM broadcasting are both... And does everyone still know what those are? Okay, well, you know, these days. Um, they're both, quote, broadcasting, unquote, as far as the allocation is concerned. If all you had was an allocation, you could do FM broadcasting in the AM band. Well, you can't under-inflexibly license, which is how those bands were done. It's the traditional way. Because the FCC said, thou shalt only use amplitude modulation AM in the AM radio band, and conversely, or accordingly, or what have you, FM in the FM band. Okay, that's inflexibly licensed. Flexibly licensed and unlicensed kind of grew up together, time frame-wise. and conceptually started you know, in a similar time frame in the 80s. Um, flexibly licensed uh, modifies inflexibly licensed mostly with regard to the tech standard. So still got to comply with power limits, certain technical parameters. But uh, it's flexible in a sense the FCC stopped mandating a particular technology standard. Uh, if, for example, AM and FM were flexibly licensed, you could do FM and the AM band, and vice versa. Okay. And what's a good example of flexibly licensed? It kind of came uh, of age with uh, mobile or what you think of the cellular uh, phone radio service. Unlicensed um, uh, doesn't have an allocation. So by definition, under international law, it is not entitled to interference protection. Uh, so there's no license, uh, which is part of what entitles you to that. Also means there's no technology standard because there's no license there's, it's not defined. The only real governing function in the unlicensed spectrum, at least traditionally, was uh, technical with its power lines. Uh, and traditionally, that, that has meant it's a very low power service, and you can talk about that. I'll, I'll give a little bit of history in a minute. Okay, so we can we can put the arrow on there. Um, using flexibly licensed as an example, what happens if something is flexibly licensed, at least in name, and um, the FCC later mandates that a, a use of a particular technology standard? Well, whether you call it flexibly licensed or not. It starts to shift or move more towards the, the, the apex corner of the triangle where you have them flexibly licensed. Um, part of this example is to show how the boundaries can shift over time. Uh, part of it is to show that no matter what you call something in terminology, when you look at the substance of it, you know, uh, it is a, a flexibly licensed spectrum in name. Truly flexibly licensed, if the FCC says thou shalt use a particular technology. In some respects, maybe still yes, but it starts to look a lot more like inflexibly flexibly licensed. And that goes for, for any of these. You can use multiple examples, and I could, you know, they're real world examples. Okay, so next slide. Nobody has to look at these, but they keep me on track. The FCC slash NTIA, which does the federal spectrum, slash the world, uh, because a lot of this or some of this is governed by international treaty, uh, binding international treaty. Uh, Tends to use all three. Well, and this is what I meant about relative uh, benefits. Uh, Why would you use all three of something with different characteristics? Well, there are trade-offs. And so uh, before we launch into a discussion of of unlicensed in particular, I thought it'd be nice to know what the trade-offs are People could argue about, you could attack every one of these. I'm going with what I would say are defensible, widely held views about the trade-offs here. Subject to lots of debate. Um, inflexibly license the pros. When you mandate a technology standard, it becomes ubiquitous. And it also enhances reliability. Um, there's a reason why it still has a role in the world uh, the FAA, for example, there's internationally harmonized allocation for uh, air navigation, radio air navigation, and international standard. Wherever your aircraft goes in the world, you can communicate, you can land, you can use the radio navigation system does. Internationally, we've agreed to a technology standard for it. It's why deployed, deploy to so make for this reliable Cons, uh, of the three, it has you know the least uh, potential or opportunity for innovation. That's in a relative sense only. Uh, why? Well, if you want to change that, uh, we don't like the technology center anymore. Now you've got to go secure international agreement, negotiate with everyone in the world. But, you know, so you run into uh, the second part that has the highest transaction costs. Uh, you've got to do a lot more negotiation when things are. Still. You can't just do what you want still widely used for things like public safety, which air traffic controls is is an example. Flexibly licensed, you're going to get more innovation than inflexibly because you don't have to go ask the FCC for permission to upgrade from 3G to 4G, for example, with cell phones. Um, You can just do it. Lower transaction costs for similar reasons, you know, there's regulatory transaction costs with having to get a license change and, and others. Alright, potential downside, lower ubiquity, there was a time in this country where a couple of providers had CDMA systems, if you remember that, and a couple had GSM, in part, Europe mandated a standard, the U.S. didn't, you ended up with different standards, reduces interoperability, et cetera, so lower ubiquity, and... To the extent, uh, use of different standards by different companies results in interference, lower reliability. I mean, again, I'm not trying to quantify these things. Uh, Don't don't think of these as necessarily extreme differences. Unlicensed, most innovation. You don't have to ask for permission to do anything as far as your technology standard. If somebody has a new idea, they don't have to go to a standards group and say, and work towards consensus. Uh, As long as they meet the power limits, they're free to deploy it. Lowest transaction costs for the same reason. You don't have to negotiate with anyone to do whatever it is you want to do. Uh, the cons, and you'll note that these things tend to be inverse or corresponding, are lower ubiquity, uh, because there are a lot of different technology standards deployed in the unlicensed bands, and that's, true, that's still true today. And, and it has the lowest reliability, because you know when you have potential conflicting Uh, Well, when you have different technology standards, they they have the potential to conflict. uh, Does everyone know what a WISP is, a wireless internet service provider? T-Mobile is a wireless internet service provider, but uh, that term tends to refer to a a particular, it, it tends to be used, at least in the communications jargon, to refer to somebody who provides a fixed broadband service using unlicensed spectrum. People think of that as being a Wi-Fi system. For the end users, it typically is. But there was a system, and I'm not sure how widely deployed now. This is I'm showing my, you know, how long it's been. But years ago, when I was at the FCC, that's the Canopy system, which was marketed by Motorola. This sort starts to show you how long ago this was since they have been absorbed by Google a long time ago. Uh, you know, Operated in the unlicensed spectrum to provide a form of backhaul, if you will, and some potentially, arguably, other functions for WISPs, um, and we were getting complaints at the FCC, it interferes with Wi-Fi. Well, the irony, and that's why I'm telling you the story, is it was facilitating use of a Wi-Fi system, but the canopy part of the system operated 100% of the time, and um, anybody tried to use a Wi-Fi device in close proximity to that might have issues. So um, that's what I mean by lowest reliability. For the most part, unlicensed bands work, but, uh, if you need something with extraordinarily high reliability, you know, it's, it's the lowest, lowest out of the free. Okay, that was the 100,000-foot overview. What we're talking about when, when when we say, you know, we should do more of this or more of that, well, you know, there are trade-offs involved, and, and this is my attempt to capture them. I'm going to sh- stop doing any more talking and... Uh, I told each panelist they could spend a couple minutes just giving their views on, on uh, unlicensed and the like, and I decided to skip the history because I've already gone on So, uh, I'll turn it over to Paul. Sure. Uh, thanks, Brad.
2: <coughs> Thank you. Um, so, I'm Paula Boyd with Microsoft, uh, and for a very long time we've been uh, engaged on spectrum issues. Uh, you know, there's a, a realization that Mobility has, over time, at least over the past decade, really become an important part of how consumers live their lives. Maybe about seven to ten years ago, folks were talking about being able to access content and information wherever you are and whenever you want it. Today, I think, uh, you know, a teenager or preteen growing up just assume assume that they can get access to whatever they want, whatever they want it, And that's in large part due to... Uh, due to wireless communications. Um, our approach has been to support uh, getting Spectrum out there into the marketplace for wireless broadband. However, we've spent most of our time uh, focused on uh, on license. I do recognize that the license carriers also need connectivity, but uh, at, at least at the time that we got out there, not a lot of folks were talking about unlicensed, or, or not a lot of folks were engaged in unlicensed advocacy. And and we decided to get out there. Part of, uh, and and I would say too, over the course of the past seven to ten years, Microsoft has also evolved as a company. You know, when we first started, and, and maybe you guys are have not had this experience because I see a lot of young faces in the room. But when I started, when I had my first PC, it came in a big box with a bunch of disks, and you have to put them in to load up the operating system, et cetera. Well, today, um, when you get your PC, it either comes loaded or you essentially get a key and you download it over the Internet. Um, and and that, that really highlights kind of the transition for Microsoft. We have moved from being a company that is kind of a... a, a a company that sells a literal product where you could go in and literally buy Office or buy uh, Windows in a store and you got a box and you got a disk to a company that really lives online and lives in the cloud. Um, when you think of all of our products, there is a cloud component to, to our products. Um, you get downloads for Windows, you get downloads for Office, you can play your Xbox console, but there's also Xbox Live. where you can play someone across the internet, or you can compete against someone across the internet. So as as time has evolved, connectivity has become really important uh, to Microsoft. And making sure that consumers are comfortable uh, accessing our content and accessing our applications and accessing our services is something that that really matters to us. And that's part of why we spend uh, time in the spectrum area. When you also think about unlicensed, you know, Fred's uh, provided a tutorial about unlicensed, but unlicensed is, is, uh, uh, you know, an allocation or a a way of making spectrum available that's been with us for a really long time. The Communications Act, everyone sort of knows the Communications Act is the Communications Act of 1934. That's when the FCC was first created, but uh, very soon after that, in 1938, the FCC uh, first allocated um, unlicensed spectrum. Um, and you know, in 1985, the FCC allocated spectrum that is, is what I refer to um, as kind of the workhorse of wireless broadband connectivity, and that's the, the 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. That's where Wi-Fi came of age. And one of the one of the I would say, at least from our perspective, one of the the <coughs> new things about unlicensed uh, uses sort of the low barriers to entry means that anyone can come in and sort of create. You know, anyone can come in and sort of say, hey, I'm going to try this. And, and you know, at least in the past uh, decade or, or more, we've we've had a tremendous benefit by folks being um, innovative, leveraging unlicensed spectrum. The other, you know, the other piece of unlicensed that I would also um, just flag for folks is that uh, you know, I think you know, around town you'll you'll hear a few companies advocating or talking about unlicensed, but unlicensed is just way bigger than the companies that talk about it. We're a fraction of the folks out there that are building devices or, or leveraging or, or having applications that leverage Wi-Fi or leverage Bluetooth or involve RFID technology. I mean, there, there's just so many more companies out there than the ones here in DC, that, that often talk about it. Um, you know, the, the I'll, I'll sort of wrap up with a, a couple of statistics that I think are kind of noteworthy. Um, in a recent study, um, the prediction is that by 2019, fixed wireless slash Wi-Fi would be carrying 66% of all internet traffic in North America. That is just a massive amount of traffic. And it, it just highlights sort of, you know, when I refer to it as the workhorse of wireless broadband connectivity, it, it highlights just how dependent consumers mm-hmm. are on a license spectrum. The other, uh, the other couple of stats that I will leave you with as well is that when we talk about sort of the value to the economy to the GDP with respect to a license, it's been estimated at <laughs> 6.7 billion. However, the economic surplus has been estimated at $222 billion. So not only is, you know, not only are folks creating devices, applications, services that leverage Wi-Fi and other wireless services, but those technologies, that spectrum is then allowing folks to do other things. And, and uh, you know, not only selling those products, but leveraging those products either, you know, to deliver other experiences or enhance productivity, and, and so you get a pretty significant e- economic surplus. With that said, I, I will leave you with the notion that as you think about spectrum, as you think about spectrum policy, um, and, and as you think about sort of sort of our economy and, and what we do with spectrum and how we leverage spectrum and the high-tech components of that, I think unlicensed spectrum has to be uh, at, at the forefront of, of, of those thoughts and considerations.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, John Hunter, T-Mobile. I was actually going to give a little historical context uh, from our company's perspective. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we've been an industry leader in Wi-Fi unlicensed for, gosh, uh, more than a decade. I think if you go back to uh, 2002 where T-Mobile launched, uh, T-Mobile hotspot, we deployed several thousand uh, Wi-Fi access points across the country. Uh, Couple that with Um, A couple Wi-Fi service providers for roaming agreements. We essentially had a nationwide network of fixed wireless Wi-Fi spots at major venues for our customers. So that was a high-speed, what we considered at the time, high-speed data for our customers. And why do I say that? I think you have to put in context where the mobile industry was back in 2002. Um, We didn't have 4G. We didn't have 3G. Um, I recall building out the, the 2G edge network. Which was painfully slow. It was, uh, uh about 100 kilobits uh, per second is what you would get. It was just a little bit better than dial-up. So we learned a lot through this offering for our customers. We innovated along the way. Uh, in 2007, we expanded on that platform, offering a, a product called T-Mobile Hotspot at Home, uh, recognizing the fact that Wi-Fi has proliferated. Uh, throughout the economy, uh, most folks now have routers in their home, uh, and so T-Mobile brought to the United States for the first time uh, a product called Unlicensed Mobile Access, and UMA is a, a product that enables um, mobile phones to make voice calls, text messages over the Wi-Fi access point, but it gets better. It has a controller that gives seamless interoperability from the Wi-Fi network to the macro cellular network. Um, we were the leaders of that. We brought that to the United States, uh, and we did that for a, a number of reasons. I think if you look at spectrum as a whole, uh, you know, not all spectrum is created equal, as we all know. Um, not having a lot of the low band spectrum, you, you try to find unique and creative ways to enhance an in-building experience, and the uh, the UMA, the T-Mobile hotspot at home product, allowed us to do that. And just some stats that uh, let us give you. Um, since we've unveiled that offering in, in 07, we have over 35 million Wi-Fi calling-enabled devices in our network today. Uh, we do over 11 million Wi-Fi calls on average uh, daily. So it's, it's, a, it's been a big, successful platform for us. Uh, we're continuing to innovate there. Just last year, uh, we unveiled um, Uncarrier 7.0, which is dubbed Wi-Fi Unleashed. And going forward, T-Mobile will be selling every smartphone in our portfolio will have Wi-Fi-enabled calling. And that includes uh, the iPhone. We brought you know that feature to the iPhone. Uh, and we also announced an agreement with, uh, you probably have heard of an airline provider named GoGo, and they offer Wi-Fi access on aircraft. So T-Mobile was the first in providing uh, text messaging while in flight, while on an aircraft. So we have a long history of innovation in this space. Uh, we're going to continue to innovate in Wi Fi, but I will tell you, we're also going to look at other unlicensed technologies like LTEU uh, that hold a lot of promise and would give our customers uh, greater throughputs that they've come to expect from the young carrier. Thank you. Hi,
3: good afternoon. Um, my name is Lara Clark. I work with the American Library Association the Office for Information Technology Policy, and I think I would be the new kid on this block. Um, we don't have a decade or two experience in this space. But um, the importance of a license and Wi-Fi has exploded in libraries, and so on, it's exploded for all of these other industries and sectors. Um, what it means for libraries is it means that we can increase our capacity, um, for public internet access, which continues to grow. People can bring their own devices as well as us providing it to them. It means that we can also be more innovative in our spaces with mobile um, training labs, with open reference, with collaborative workspaces that allow people to take advantage of the laptop. And it also is about the user experience and more to any other industry. Um, for, for folks that have the um, data plans, um, the Wi-Fi obviously allows them to offload them. Um, For folks that do not have a data plan, the Wi-Fi is a lifeline, and we see that a lot in our libraries. But this unlicensed use, this Wi-Fi space is critical to something that I am an expert in, which is around equity of access. It's about um, lowering barriers to people having access to information and services, and Wi-Fi is more and more important in that um, in our work. And so I'm um, trying hard to catch up with all the experts in this space to better understand how can we preserve and protect unlicensed spectrum and find the right balance. Because even though somebody's not paying a fee, um, as they might an incentive option um, to the treasury, um, this unlicensed use is really valuable. And how do we prioritize a price on that? How do we talk about the value? So that's been an important part of kind of our interest in ALA and in libraries and for the values that we have. And this also played out, I think you can see this also in the UA proceeding um, as wireless, the Wi-Fi networks are an important part of that conversation. And what does Wi-Fi mean and what does it allow for personalized um, learning and collaborative learning? So I think those are some of the pieces that really matter to me in this space. And how do we find that right balance with uh, the flexible licensed and the unlicensed um, going forward? How do I identify new opportunities? What, what can we do together? Where can we find agreement um, to um, create more unlicensed spectrum and
4: use it effectively? Hi, I'm David Young with Verizon. Uh, and Verizon has a long history with Wi-Fi as well. Um, of course, when we deployed our, our Fios, uh, fiber-to-home broadband service, uh, a Wi-Fi router was included as part of that package from the beginning and our customers very quickly uh, came to depend on being able to use Wi-Fi in their homes to connect to that very fast uh, fiber-based uh, broadband connection um, and we have continued to advance that uh, to the, the latest generations of Wi-Fi technology so that uh, the speeds that our customers can get over that Wi-Fi connection uh, are able to keep up with the faster and faster speeds that are being delivered o- over the fiber. Uh, so we are are excited about uh, how Wi-Fi is being used by our customers in that wireline context in their homes. Um, and uh, we, we want to see those technology improvements continue so that the, the speeds that our customers can get over their wireless devices in their homes will will be able to keep up with the ever faster speeds that are being delivered there. And, and we think that uh, improvements in technology will allow that to occur, um, and, but we also think that uh, additional spectrum should be made available on the unlicensed side um, so that uh, so that, that technology can, t- can continue to advance. Um, on the mobile side, obviously, uh, we care about licensed spectrum too. And, uh, and so, um, it, as Congress moves forward uh, uh, looking at, at new spectrum opportunities, um, we think a balanced approach that uh, identifies spectrum that's, uh, that's suitable for license license use flexible use license use and uh, uh, you know that can be auctioned off is obviously very very important uh, and so a balanced approach that balances unlicensed with, uh, with licensed is important. but our mobile customers in addition to connecting to our networks through licensed spectrum, also use these devices to access Wi-Fi networks, uh, as I mentioned, in their homes and uh, and when they're uh, out and about at the library or wherever. Um, but they also use these devices to create their own Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, so they use the LTE network to uh, provide the connectivity to the device, create a hotspot that then uh, can be shared with multiple devices that they might have, or with family members or business colleagues or whatever. Uh, so we, we see uh, Wi-Fi um, uh, as a, a very integral part of the services that our customers demand from us. Um, and like T-Mobile, we are excited about the possibilities for new technologies that can operate in the unlicensed space to give our customers even better experiences, um, uh, but that will also play nicely with uh, Wi-Fi going forward. So. Um, I think I'll, I'll stop there as far as remarks. I think we've covered uh, a lot of the, the good introduction, and maybe we could turn it into a dialogue. Yeah, so I
1: I'm going to go back a little bit and mention a, a piece of the history, and I thank you, Paula, for, for doing the 1938 number. That's interesting. No, I, I, it's in my book, too. It's a good number. Uh here. What happened in the 80s was 1985 when the FCC did the Uh, You know the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz and 900 megahertz ISM bands, and then now I'm getting technical. Allowed higher power, so unlicensed has been allowed since '38, but at very low powers. I'm going off memory, maybe 15 milliwatts, 15 millionths of a watt, but maybe that's wrong. But something really low like that. And what they did in '85 is they said you can operate. A device without a license in these three particular bands, because they were industrial bands, microwave ovens, operate the 2.4 megahertz uh, band, which they weren't worried about on licensed devices, causing communications interference from microwaves. It's quite the, opposite the other way around. Um, the, they authorized it for one watt, and they did it for two reasons. One was uh, they weren't worried about the interference to licensed services because these were industrial bands. You can use radio frequency for more than microwave ovens. Uh, you could make paint, cure, do lots of things. Um, and secondly, uh, a group of folks said, you know, if you allow us to do this, we'll be able to experiment with new technologies, and we want to do something called spread spectrum technology. Don't worry about what it is. This is a new technology. It's in all the technologies that we consider current generation these days. Uh, but it was pioneered uh, in the unlicensed Interesting note, uh, the Wi-Fi standard itself was first finalized by the IEEE, I believe, in 1997. Uh, rules came out in 1985. So it, it took, you know, about 12 years. Uh, in the meantime, you could do other unlicensed devices, and there are still, I believe, the last I checked, you can buy analog, uh, you know, baby monitors and the like, in the 2.4 gigahertz band, which will interfere with, Wi-Fi devices. And the reason I ask that history is, is I found one of the most interesting things about this discussion is that oftentimes Wi-Fi is conflated with unlicensed. I mean, yes. If, if you had listened to this discussion without any of my background or, or knowledge, or hopefully it, my background made sense, you would think unlicensed means Wi-Fi. But that, it, it, I would say right now it doesn't. But it leads to an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, should it? Uh and what does that mean, which is why, you know, I wanted to go through some pros and cons. So I'll pose that to the panel generally and see if anybody wants to take it, because, uh, you know, one possible approach is we're not worried about all these other things. We're going to say you have to use Wi-Fi, and uh, I don't know that anyone proposed that. But I'll ask the question, see what people have to say. Anyone want to jump?
4: Sure, I'll jump in. So. I think that the, uh, the FCC's approach to unlicensed has been remarkably successful and has produced these terrific results. And Wi-Fi is, uh, the, the example that most people are, are most readily familiar with, although Bluetooth and Zigbee and other technologies are also, uh, you know, commonly used. Cordless phones in your house use these spectrums. So, uh, there are other, um, uh, other standards out there already. I, I think the uh, the key, though, is that uh, you know keeping in place this permissionless innovation model that allows new technologies to be uh, experimented with, brought to market, and you know either succeed or fail on their own merits uh, uh, has been remarkably successful and, and should be kept in place.
1: Anyone else? It's a provocative question, so you may not want to answer.
2: Sure, I'll I'll go ahead as well. I mean, you know. I, I do agree with uh, David's comments. Um, it, for the most part, you know, unlicensed has meant that anyone can innovate, and so the ability to go into the band and innovate um, is uh, it, is really important. The ability for innovators to have a place that they can go and they can uh, try, you know, try out particular services or particular devices um, and see what what. You know, try to figure out what customers want. Whether or not it 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 works economically or it doesn't work economically, I think is really important. Um, I think what the question begs, however, is (laughs) underlying it. You know, is I think discussions that are happening around um, whether or not you can enter the band and whether or not that entrance adversely impacts the existing users of that band. I think the LTEU issue that uh, has been referenced is, is where one of those discussions is, is occurring. And you know, I think from our perspective, I think you have to, you know, if, if you have uh, products in the marketplace, if you have devices in the in, in, in the marketplace that are leveraging these technologies, that could be stranded or could be impeded or degraded. I do think you have to take a look at how you use that band. It doesn't mean that you that that an approach to unlicensed has to be changed uh, permanently but I do think coexistence in, in enabling all services to, to coexist is is something is an important goal to try to achieve
0: <laughs> yeah I think just a comment on that I think uh, you know in, innovation in itself you know it's over part 15 of the, the unlicensed rules and I think you know, when you look at all the innovation that's happening in the unlicensed space, many of these technologies would have not come to fruition, fruition, such as Wi-Fi, had it not been for Part 15 rules. And so it's, when you think about new technologies coming into play, uh, fair coexistence has always been a hallmark of the unlicensed ban. Uh, you have the rules that you must follow, and if, if the new technology follows the regulatory tenets of what's been laid out, then it should be allowed to move forward and innovate. And so I think that's kind of where we're at. We're, we're big supporters of Wi-Fi. We have Wi-Fi integrated in the vast majority of our devices. So the notion that we would be looking at a technology that could somehow undermine the end user experience from our customer base, it just just lies in the face of of sound logic, in mean, our perspective, we look at this technology. We've seen the coexistence studies. Um, it's proven that it is it, it shares well uh, with Wi-Fi, if not better than Wi-Fi. And so I, I think I, I understand the debate. I understand the the large ecosystem that's out there uh, with Wi-Fi, but innovation should be allowed to continue. And I think that's what it's about with t We look at this. This is this is a step. Yes. Were Wi Fi and LTE? Listening to both those things, it occurs to me
1: that if you want to put this in sort of a traditional legal framework of reliance interests, there are conflicting, potentially reliance interests. I say potentially because we can argue about whether they're actually in conflict or whether they're valid. But let's assume for a second that. Uh, Consumers who go out and buy unlicensed devices have some sort of reliance interest in that device being able to work. Now the legal standard is they have no reliance interest, in quote, vested interest, unquote, is what the rule says. You as a consumer, when you buy any unlicensed device, I'm not just talking about Wi-Fi, are taking your chances. Most consumers don't necessarily realize this, but there are no labeling requirements along those lines that I'm aware of. Um, the second potential reliance interest is on an innovator technology company and the like who looks at the unlicensed rules, reads them and says, the law says, I can do X. Spends time and money developing a standard and advice that can do X, uh, but then potentially interferes with uh, existing devices uh, that consumers have purchased. Uh, and, and then so the question is, wait a second, I, innovator, relied on rules that said I'm fine. Consumers now say, "Hey, I, lawfully advised, relying on the fact they're going to work." Um, this is leading into a question. You know, the way traditionally that type of thing was avoided was through those allocation and licensing rules I talked about. You know, unlicensed did something different. Question. You know, there's a certain amount now. Let's say of of expectation out there about. On license and what it means. Well, I found it interesting that many people on, on more consumer-oriented think it means Why fi um, Do we give up on the traditional rules and just concede that uh, you know what, we should put protection in place and we're going to treat this like a traditional more like a tradition. We're going to move up the triangle towards license. To me, that seems like a fundamental threshold question that we're dancing around but not asking outright. So I'm going to ask it outright.
3: So um, I'm generally skeptical of either-or scenarios um, where it's either this or it's that. Um, it seems to me that we've done, we have some good protections in the system now that we like. That it's relatively low uh, regulation. That it it's pretty practical. That there are international technical standards at least around the equipment. So there's some some agreement that we're going to play nicely and that we all have a stake in this space. So it seems like there's a lot that we can agree on, but that doesn't mean that we might not modify or make changes. And I think that's one of the questions that I've heard in the LTEU and spaces. And what safeguards do we have if we take this from, from these tests where I think there's these questions, does it interfere? our doesn't it? Um, and how do we know? And then we scale um, to a carrier level so It's not you know, kind of a small innovation, it's a big innovation, it's taking up quite a lot um, of space in this sector. So how do we, what happens if we go to scale, and then how do we protect that? And when do you bring in the referee of the FCC or another foreign body? So how do you protect what we have, and you know, it works? seems to be working well, there's a lot of agreement that we've come to a good place as far as the regulation and how we all work together in this space. Um, but also... Be mindful of it. As new technology comes onto the scene, maybe it's a game changer. Maybe it does um, rock the boat and cause a new way of thinking about um, how do we protect the unlicensed and, and refine that balance. So I guess that's a question that I have being newer is what safeguards as we take this to scale, um, what, what does that look like, and how do we make sure that we don't lose... All the aspects that we really enjoy in this space I, mean, I, I, I can tell you one that's been
1: proposed, but I don't want to cut panelists. <laughs> Does any panelists have sure. a direct response? I'd rather the panelists talking.
4: yeah, absolutely so uh, I, I think it's really a, a great question and a great point. Uh, the FCC clearly has a role um, today if uh, if there are unlicensed devices, let's just say you know vid- baby video baby monitor. Uh, it comes in and it turns out that it's actually, um, uh, you know, causing interference somehow, Uh, the FCC uh, has the ability to track them down and and make the person stop using them. Now, if you're talking about a million baby monitors that have been deployed, um, scattered throughout the country, it's trying to find a needle in the haystack, you know, where is this interference coming from and how do we find it and, and resolve it? Uh, the type of problem that you described, Laura, is a scaling problem associated with the uh, carrier's use. And the good news there is the carrier is not hard to find, right? Uh, and so if there is a problem, the FCC knows exactly where to go. Um, so we we don't expect that there will be a problem, but certainly a requirement for Verizon and uh, I believe T-Mobile and everybody else who's Looking into LTEU is that it does play nicely with Wi-Fi. Um, because our companies and our customers uh, depend on Wi-Fi, it's critical for us that uh, this new technology plays nicely. And so we will ensure that the technology does that, not because the FCC rules require it, they don't, uh, but because we require it uh, because our customers depend it. Yeah, and I think just to add on to that, much like Verizon, you talked about the MyFi the product. And- uh, so, the
2: mobile device this can be
0: turned into a Wi Fi hotspot. So, if you think about the technology as a whole and the, the number of Wi Fi enabled devices that we have on that, network, million and growing every day. Uh, and as I said, on Carrier 7 last year, we said we we're going to deploy Wi Fi on every single smartphone device that we have. Uh, the way LTE works, uh, you, you do have um, some of the signaling channels. I don't want to get too technical here, but it's to the license network, so you have uh, some level of control over what that LTDU small cell would be doing. So it's not like Wi-Fi, per se, where you deploy, you deploy a Wi-Fi unit. There is no control as to what is going on with that device, um, you know, it's, it's, data point. Not
3: really. it's like a needle on a
0: haystack. If it's, it's transmitting above its limits and it's uh, outside of Part 15, then the, the commission's going to go out there and try to find it. I think in our case, it's, it's going to be somewhat different. You do have an element of control uh, that I think will um, hopefully mollify some of those concerns. Uh, but then again, when you look at the testing that has been done, it's, there's been rigorous testing by a number of folks. The, the evidence is clear that uh, interference uh, is, is not an issue. It can accurately coexist. Uh, and I think the rules, I think to your point on the, uh, you know, should we change the rules? And, you know, I, I get to the, to the point that David made about the, the million baby monitors and garage door openers. And, you know, what, what would they have said uh, when Wi-Fi was coming in to prominence? You know, when all these other new technologies are coming about, um, are they fearful that they're going to get interfered with? Uh, I, I think it's it's a fair question, but it, you, the, the the licensing rules for uh, or the rules per se for unlicensed that put in place to promote innovation. And I think, if, as you pointed out, if, if you know, you're, there's no guarantee that you're not going to receive interference, but you can't cause interference, and that's part of the rules. You know, and so. The, you know, LTU devices causing interference to, to Wi Fi, um, you know, the, the evidence is there. And, and like I said, from a business point of view, uh, I, I think the carriers, first and foremost, would probably know that more than anybody else before they went down a path of, of trying to deploy uh, a technology that could potentially cause harm. Well,
1: I, I promise not to make this, but I'll give you a segue, maybe. I, I promise not to make this a uh, uh, and LTEU versus Wi Fi debate, and that's certainly not, not the intent. So, I want to I try to bring it back up, and, and this is related to my question, but I'm going to talk about it a tad bit differently, which is the issue of, you know, that power raised, which is a real issue of having an embedded base of devices out there on an unlicensed basis, and what happens if they do experience widespread interference is not new. And the question about what to do about it, if anything, it's not new. So I just want to stress this is not an LTEU Wi-Fi issue per se. One example when I was at the FCC is that garage door openers tend to most of them operate on an unlicensed basis, not in one of these higher power bands used by Wi-Fi and in, in you know the 3-400 megahertz range. It happens to be licensed for primarily government use um, because they're so low power. You know, along those lines of those 15 milliwatts, the government said, "Oh, so, no, we don't like if you do it there." Well because the government uses the primary use under that you know, licensed allocation scheme. They are allowed to do what they want, and the military turned up some new radar systems that operate at relatively high power, and it turned out if you had a garage door opener at a house that was anywhere near one of these uh, military base installations, your garage door just opened and closed, randomly all throughout the day. Uh, needless to say, as, as at the time, I'm, I think, a legal advisor to the, the chairman of the FCC, uh, fortunately wasn't prior was a bureau chief yet, uh, we got an awful lot of complaints from Congress about well, what are you going to do about this to help these consumers? Under the rules, absolutely nothing. Uh, and we didn't do anything, because there wasn't anything really that you could do legally, I and mean, then you could start rulemaking and change the rules. But the, 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 the point, and, and this is the point that I think David alluded to, is the grasshoppers are out there. So uh, uh, I, I wanted to make this discussion a little broader than the LTU. This is always a potential issue, and that's why I was actually being quite serious about the question is, you know, is the unlicensed experiment, if you will, at higher power really viable or, or not? Or, you know, what, what are the middle ground alternatives? I don't know what maybe Paul is going to address that. Yeah, so I'm going
2: to, I'm going to diverge again but I'll try to come back to, to uh, your, your question, friend. So you could, can you, can you Sure. I'm going to diverge, but uh, I'm going to try to come back. The light's on, so. It is? Okay. Yeah. I um, just want to go back to LTEU for a second. Uh, the LTEU uh, protocol or technology is being developed by a small group of companies. It's not going through the regular standards body process. Um, so we worry that there's insufficient information out there to actually figure out whether or not uh, unlicensed devices and, and uses can actually coexist with LTEU. Completely appreciate the promises by my colleagues on the panel, but when, when you're on the other side of the issue, and, and you have a fair amount invested in the issue, and frankly, from the numbers we see, and from the economic value that it brings, I would I would think that it's important enough to make sure that coexistence and that all parties are comfortable with how uh, that spectrum is shared if you're going to go into that spectrum. So I, I just want to just flag that because it, it's not unanimous that everyone believes that uh, sharing is is doable and that there's sufficient information out there to to really uh, get for everyone to really get to that. Um, you know, so, so it, it presents a difficult question. Um, and I think the, the question that, that Fred has posed is really that um, rightfully you go into the ban, you use the ban, and you don't, um, you know, unlicensed devices are not supposed to interfere with anyone else and are supposed to be able to accept and deal with all interferences. The reality, though, is that we've had spectrum policy, and we've we've had an evolution of spectrum policy um, since 1934. Uh, You know, and what's neat about this, and what's neat about Congress, what's neat about the FCC, is that when issues are presented, bodies have the ability to go in and figure out: Is there a new path? Is there a new way to do things? What is the new paradigm? So even if today we're saying, "Hey," unlicensed, you know, you are accepting all interference and you you should not interfere with anyone else. If you're presented with a big problem, let's try to figure out and and address that big problem. I mean, I think I like Laura's approach that this is not either-or. You know, there are creative people out there, there are thoughtful people out there. Let's figure it out.
4: (coughs) So, I think uh, if you look at uh, his, historically um, how this has worked, uh, Fred alluded to it, um, I, I was watching an episode, a rerun of Seinfeld the other day, and of course they have the big cordless phone with the antenna. That was the killer app for uh, the 2.4 gigahertz band in the, in the late 80s, and, you know, early 90s, before Wi-Fi came along. Um, and Fortunately, for the proponents of Wi-Fi, they didn't have to prove to the cordless phone makers that Wi-Fi wouldn't cause any harmful interference to cordless phones. Um, If that requirement had been in place, I suspect we wouldn't have Wi-Fi today. Um, But fortunately, the the permissionless innovation model allowed Wi-Fi to develop and allowed Wi-Fi to be deployed and and to develop real-world experience as to how it interacts with the incumbent users of that technology, which at the time of of cordless phones, Um, and both technologies evolve over time to interoperate with one another, and I have no reason to doubt that that won't continue going forward. I would also
0: add that when, you know, I think this is probably something we can all agree on when you talk about uh, coexistence mechanisms and what have you, a big element to this is Spectrum get more spectrum, get more unlicensed spectrum out of the pipeline, you have more opportunity for opportunistic use of channels being available. So uh, that is also something that we have uh, been a big supporter of, uh, trying to get more unlicensed spectrum uh, out into the marketplace. And looking at existing technologies today, I mean, that's that's even a challenge as we're looking at 802.11ac, which is the next uh, evolution of uh, Wi-Fi. So when you look at some of these new technologies, Spectrum can be a constraint, but if, if you've got abundance of Spectrum, if you can fill the pipeline with more Spectrum for an unlicensed use, it lessens the burden for that coexistence opportunity by making the Spectrum available for users when they need it. So maybe this is less of a statement
3: than a question. Is um, it sounds like there are other things in addition to LTEU in the space that people have been paying attention to, whether it's the Wi-Fi Innovation Act or there are other areas um, where we could be looking at unlicensed license spectrum and the opportunities that are there. So um, I'm curious what other things people are paying attention to, whether it's in the 5 gigahertz or the 3.5, and what else is on deck as we think about this question around LTEU, and I think keep working at it, because I don't think we're done. I think there really are these questions they are fair questions, and um, this standard-setting piece is still important, so I think um, good people will continue to ask good questions in this space. But I wonder if there are other opportunities where there might be agreement and there might be a moment in time for us to move forward on a license spectrum that we might spend a little bit of time on. Um, and if there's something at the top
0: of mind for some of you that spend a lot of time in this space. Well, I, I think the 3.5-year span presents an interesting opportunity. I mean, you know, it's, uh, for th- folks who followed that proceeding, um, it's, it's novel in the sense that it's uh, an evolution of, I think, spectrum policy and how uh, spectrum has been allocated. It's a three-tiered approach whereby we have a federal incumbent, uh, they have privacy and demand, and so users must share around them. But then you go to the next level, which would be what we call a priority access licensee. Those would be kind of to your earlier chart up there, from the pseudo license, if you will. Uh, and then underneath that, you have general authorized access. And there's a tremendous amount of spectrum that's being uh, called out for unlicensed use in that proceeding, and I believe it's uh, in the neighborhood of about 80 megahertz. So um, it, it, the proceeding is ongoing. there's a lot of debate on how to structure some of the, uh, the licensing requirements for the pals. power has been a, a, a big topic of discussion uh, and then coexistence with some of the adjacent the fixed satellite services uh, you know to the north of the band or, or something being looked at. But I think by and large it, it does present an opportunity for a license spectrum so, it's important that as we move forward that from a policy perspective that we get the, the framework for that right so that spectrum can be put to use.
1: Yeah, and, and I wanted to address that just for a second. In some ways, that, that 3.5 gigahertz band to me is a combination of all three of what I would call the traditional uh, yeah. modes yeah. within one band. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these, when I said the boundaries are blurry, They are being blurred, and and some of my very direct questions are just trying to get the panelists to comment on what if we stop blurring and just push it all the way over. And um, some things I'm thinking about this more response, you know, the FCC has already, in my view, departed from, you know, the Part 15, the the letter of the law, if you will, Part 15 Rule on Interference in a number of different ways uh, based on some of these reliance interests, which, you know, as I said, I, I do think are real. Um, the question is, what do you do about it, and when it's appropriate to do about it, or or not in, in the case of open as well as so we're not doing anything about it. But, um, you know, so they just, uh, in, a, in what I view as a somewhat opaque order, uh, you know, did a consent decree with Marriott Hotels for you know, quote jamming unquote of of Wi-Fi, which I, as someone of course, to be an expert in this area, we can debate whether that was jamming or something else, uh, but did not get into the details. Um, Whatever it was, jamming, or more of what you might consider a net neutrality issue, uh, in terms of art, I I think you can read the Part 15 rules to say there was no vested interest in the user of that Wi-Fi hotspot to use it, uh, or be protected from jamming, if it was jamming. Um, Now... I say you can make that argument. That's not where the consent decree ended up. So it, that's one example of, of you know the slippery slope, if you will, has already we've already started to shift. And that's why I started to ask the questions. What I don't see happening is I don't see the FCC acknowledging that it's shifting. And so you know, as somebody who you know is think, takes a think tank focus on policy perspective, I think it's usually better to acknowledge what it is we're talking about expressly. Do we really want to shift or not, and why, rather than, you know, there have been a series of decisions along those lines that have filtered out that have indicated that the FCC is interested in or willing to consider some form of protection, if you will, of unlicensed devices in some way. What we don't know, uh, going to the, you know, is there a middle round, is what are the extents, what's the extent of those ways, what are they? When are they going to apply and are they not going to apply? So there is going to be an ongoing debate about this, I would expect.
4: So I I think those are really good examples. The Marriott one is interesting. I guess there was a more recent one with the convention center. And for those who aren't familiar with it, the issue was that, uh, you know, people wanted to create their own Wi-Fi hotspots in the hotel, and uh, Marriott was using a system that basically prevented those from working. And what's interesting about it is the FCC didn't change Part 15 rules, right? You know, I'm sure the equipment that Marriott was using complied with, with the Part 15 rules completely. But what they did go after was behavior that was causing a particular effect. And so I think that gets back to Laura's question before is, you know, if, if there is a problem that materializes in the future somehow because of scaling or, uh, you know, uh, somebody deliberately causing a problem, um, does the FCC have any recourse? And I think the answer is pretty clearly yes. Well, so I, I kept saying I'm not going to say what some of the approaches
1: are, but you just implied one of them. It's, it, it, by calling it jamming, which, you know, I can argue it wasn't, the FCC relied on a part of the statute that says you can't willfully interfere. Well, willfully is a legal standard. It pretty much means intentional. So... In other words, if you don't have a right to interfe- protection from interference when using Wi Fi, but do you have a right from willful? So is it, is, is it okay to protect it if it's willful? And then, of course, we've got to talk about what willful means. Uh, that's one potential middle ground. We don't want folks out there uh, turning up systems that comply with the technical rules but cause interference and knowingly doing it because they want to cause interference for whatever reason. I mean, Marriott had economic reasons. Uh, that's one potential thing to think about. I mean, the FCC already arguably set precedent that leans in that direction. Um, anyone else? Uh, we can open, we're almost, I think we're until 1.15. We're going to open up the questions, but I want to make sure everybody had a chance to say what they wanted to say. anyone from the audience have any questions for the panelists? Yes. Ben, do we
5: have a mic that they... Yeah. No. So yeah. speak loudly. Did you get that, voice? That is not a problem. Uh, so, um, hi, Rick Sermon from NTTA. So, I wanted to get um, a little more on your point, Brad, about um, reliance interests. And uh, I use the term myself in some settings, and I'm not sure I like the term because you says there's no people require it. But to distinguish a little bit from garage door openers or the Seinfeld cordless phone, uh, because the recent Cisco stats, I think, on wireless devices show that the
2: average household today
5: has 11 Wi Fi devices in the home. I did a count, I have three kids, the oldest of which is 10. We have 22 Wi Fi enabled devices in our home. Uh, by 2017, Cisco estimates 86% of all in home users will be Wi Fi. So the point I'm trying to make is versus the garage door opener situation, those reliance interests are going to be quite tremendous. So uh, I take T-Mobile and Verizon at their word that they don't intend to interfere, but I must take issue with uh, John Hunter when he says that it's proven, the tests all show, Cable Labs, the research arm of the cable industry, did just post a blog uh, the other day uh, expressing concern, part of it, and this goes to the question that you raised, and you offered up a reliance interest that said, well, the rules are one way around these issues, but there's another way, too, and that's the standard-setting bodies. And we haven't talked about the standard-setting bodies, and I think one of our concerns is that the LTEU forum, which is a carrier-led group, seems to be a very closed and narrow forum, and our folks have, I think, wanted to work with the LTEU forum and suggest that they work with IEEE and uh, work with the 3DCP, which has an international leader, et etc. So I guess to boil down the uh, as Phil Weiser likes to call it the confession uh, for anyone that knows this here. Maybe you know what other body No okay. Uh, so the question is really on standard-setting bodies and what is the appropriate role and whether uh, in fact the standard-setting bodies can get together and try to work this out in advance. Well, you were mentioned by name, Johnson.
1: I can't believe that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> mentioned by name. Well, first off, Timo was not a member of the LTU forum, so we've looked at this independently. Uh, we've assessed it across the board, and I, I think we had some discussion about this this form setting um, and why specifications were being developed there versus, uh, say, three GPP standard body setting. And a lot of debate was, you know, LB, LBT listen before talk versus the CSAT algorithm that's that's being uh, used in uh, LTE. When you look at the the what's required for LVT is not a that's not a US mandate. That's something to be satisfied in Europe. So that requirement does not exist in the United States from a an incumbent federal system perspective. So the LTEU form put together these specifications, and again, this is an evolution, just like any technology that's deployed uh it evolves along the way. It's it's a this would be the first generation of deploying and innovating in this space. And when you show, and I I know you mentioned cable labs with their study, but we've got our studies too. And so we can get in this debate your study, my study. Uh, The fact of the matter is when you when you look at also the number of devices you're talking about that would reside in in one's home with with Wi-Fi, I would bet the guess about half of those are wireless you know, wireless phones um, because we have Wi-Fi. This will become a Wi-Fi hotspot. It uses Wi-Fi, um, and the idea that it would also use LTEU. So, how do you reconcile that conflict if, if there if there's the potential for uh, interference in deploying that? It, it's it's hard to understand how one would deploy something in a, in a manner that would be so intrusive in the same device. So I, I, I hear your point. Uh, you know, we've heard it uh, from the other side. I think uh, a lot of this boils down to a business issue, not a technical issue. Uh, I think you'll find that on both sides. I know uh, I know. cable in general have deployed, uh, you know, hundreds if not thousands of Wi-Fi hotspots across across the, uh, the country. So, um, you know, but you know what? We have two. And, and we, we have Wi-Fi hotspots, but we also have a, a licensed macro network. And so we believe uh, we believe they can't coexist, and, and the, the evidence will show that.
4: And, and just to build on that, the, um, the, the beauty of the, the band that we're talking about, and it's a 5 gigahertz band, uh, coupled with the low power requirements four-on uh, unlicensed means that it doesn't go that far. It doesn't go through walls that well right. and so um, the Wi-Fi in Rick's home is safe because his Wi-Fi hotspot that's using the 5 gigahertz band is, is propagating that throughout his home uh, but uh, another technology that's being used outside his home uh, at low power uh, the, as required by the unlicensed rules, uh, will not be propagating into its home and causing interference. So the, part of the beauty of, of the of way the unlicensed rules have worked is that there's a sort of a natural protection from interference uh, that's created by the, the power requirements coupled with the higher frequency band that we're talking about here uh, really makes interference highly unlikely.
2: Um. So I go back to just the notion that, uh, you know, let's let's share the information. Let's figure it out. Um, you know, I think uh, John referenced this LAA's uh, approach where there's a different rule overseas in Europe than there is here. And some folks anticipate that that might uh, get to a better place in terms of sharing. There are, you know different ways to approach this. Let's figure out what the right way is, and let's all come together and figure that out.
3: Yeah, since we're getting close on time, I mean, I think that I'm really glad that the Internet Caucus had this forum. I hope there's going to be more of them. Um, The reason why a light and is kind of this space is that everybody has to care about this space. This spectrum is critically important. It always has been, but it's going to be even more so and there's not enough of it. So we're now to share it and to make the best use of it. So I hope that all the congressional staff both in this room is on their own learning curve will continue to look across this and to remember as well that this is a public interest. It's a library issue. It's a school issue. It's a people issue. It's not just a business issue or a commercial issue, which is not to say that my colleagues don't care about people. But just that, um, that these issues we do, we do. I know I mean, through that these issues I think <laughs> often get framed through strictly commercial lenses. And I think that we need to do more to look at what this looks like as far as public interest and public institutions. What does that look like in the space? And then also what does it mean as far as equity of access and digital inclusion? Because I think and that's one of the things that's on people's uh papers here, is that a lot of the folks that we are looking at um, for low-income people, for people of color, that they very much depend on library service as a complement, particularly as they're building their own wealth and ability to engage in the digital economy. So all of those factors sometimes don't make the front page, and I think they're going to be really important, and that's part of the reason why I'm really glad to be here and to be learning in this space. And I think there's a lot more talking and listening and
2: learning that needs to happen. So, I'm if you don't mind, we, you. we have a couple minutes. Sounds mm-hmm. good. So I'm just going to jump in uh, and just toss out a couple more stats. Um, when you think of the future and you think of unlicensed, and this is not just Wi-Fi, think of also device-to-device communications. Um, so so this is, this is, you know, when you hear us talk, you we tend to talk about sometimes our specific interests. But as Laura is saying, this is much broader. Um, in 2019, the network devices in the U.S. Uh, machine-to-machine devices that are connected will be 58% of the network devices that exist. Compare that to smartphones, which will only be 8% of the network devices in 2019, or projected to be 8% of the network devices in 2019. That part part of what I'm getting at here is that this issue is a big issue, and it includes industries. And it includes innovators that are not here. I mean, it, you know, th- this is tremendous value with respect to our economy. This, this, these are, are, are big, meaty issues. Also, I, I talked about sort of the Internet traffic and, and the, you know, the, the, what's literally carrying our Internet traffic. And I, I tossed out initially the, the number of 66% being carried by fixed or Wi-Fi networks. Compare that to only 11% being carried by mobile networks. Going back to the notion that when you talk about wireless broadband connectivity, Wi-Fi, fixed networks are like the backbone. Are the, it's the workhorse of how we connect. And so it makes it really important. And it, it, it highlights Fred's question, you know, do we need to protect it separately or not? But I think, at a minimum, we've got to resolve the issues that surround it, and that, that and and resolve, you know, issues that where we're, folks are talking about potential degradation to those to potential degradation to those services.
1: Well, I I think we're just about out of time, but as the moderator has the prerogative to have the last word, so I want to thank the caucus. has been hope the Panelists did a great job. The issues are difficult. I think they cut across consumers and companies whose interests may or may not always be consistent in, in this space or any other. So it's, it's complicated. Thanks for staying with us. Thank you. Thank you.